in the last couple of weeks, is that what's most consoling is telling the truth. And what's most consoling in groups is telling the truth about what fundamentally human beings are capable of being, you know, really fundamentally capable of seeing each other in a wise way. I have, um, I took off the internet. Maybe that'd be a good place to start. Took off the internet a uh, copy from, of, um, a uh, document, <clears throat> an interfaith clergy document, um, signed by uh, pages and pages of American clergy. Um, Muslim, Christian, Jewish clergy. I noticed actually they didn't have Buddhist clergy here, and uh, but they could have, uh, and other kinds of uh, clergy in this country. They would have had to change a little bit of the words. They would have had to not say God. They would have had to say. Um, the goodness that's our nature or something. Um, but the, 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 the sense of um, um, connecting on a level where we all understand the amount of suffering in the world, not our suffering or our suffering is different from other people's suffering in different lineages of clergy or different groups of people, but really the amount of suffering in the world and the need to respond to it in the way that human beings um, are capable of responding with compassion. And I think to myself sometimes, this is not nearly as articulate as they, but they've already said it, so I'll try to do it my way. But I think it's an amazing thing that human beings have the possibility of feeling like doing something, having an impulse to do it, and deciding not to, uh, on the basis of it not being for the general good. It's an amazing piece. You know, in, in Buddhist um, tradition, uh, uh, we don't talk a lot about cosmology here. There is a Buddhist cosmology, or there's a cosmology that the Buddha taught about worlds and levels of incarnations and different kinds of incarnations that you could be born into. And uh, um, even the cosmology of Buddhism changes from one lineage of Buddhism to another. When, if anybody starts a sentence with the words, Buddhists believe, you know it's already a mistake. Um, I, I notice that all the time when people say, well, Jews believe, that's already a mistake. Because none of these are monolithic. Couldn't say about Christians believe. It's not monolithic. People believe within a traditional framework all kinds of cosmologies. I remember a, a discussion a long time ago um, in the Buddhist community, in the Spirit Rock community, I think in preparation for one of the now several uh, conferences that we've had with all the various traditions of Buddhism in this country, <clears throat> uh, about uh, is there something that we all believe? Could we, because when, if we take little votes and we say who here feels comfortable with the doctrine of rebirth, who here feels really like what we really want to teach is suffering, uh, who wants it? Where? Who feels that really what the Buddha taught was happiness, or liberation, or freedom, or 
How do you want to teach about freedom? Is it the freedom, what freedom to what? What do you understand by freedom? <clears throat> and certainly when it comes to cosmology, there's a whole spectrum, a range of Buddhist beliefs or beliefs among Buddhists. And what really uh, fundamentally people are right, quite comfortable saying is uh, what we really trust is that the Four Noble Truths are true, universally. And they don't say anything about cosmology. They say that fundamentally the heart in contest with whatever is happening is the heart that suffers. You know, that that uh, to resist or to fight with what can't be other is the source of struggle in the world. To struggle with what can't be other is the source of suffering. And it's possible for human beings to give up that struggle, not to give up living passionately in the world and making it a good place to be. I was very touched by whoever said in our very early class discussion this morning about going to Buddhist Peace Fellowship meeting this week and finding a passionate young Buddhist, you know. <coughs> On Wednesday mornings here, we're not so young just by the nature of what time of the week it is and what day, you know. We're none of us in school. Um, but really wonderful to find people, Buddhists and not Buddhists, passionately aware that human beings have the capacity to respond passionately, diligently, appropriately, lawfully, and peacefully to every situation. Doesn't mean even not strongly or not clearly, but peacefully. That we can do that with human hearts. Not even because we're afraid, not because we're afraid to do other, but because we choose not to do other. You know, I was thinking about, um, there's a, a uh, a, a dog training place right outside one of my grandchildren's house. So when I babysit, we watch them do the dog training because it's great for little kids. They like to watch that. And he said, here's all these people teaching their dogs to do these things that the dogs don't want to do. They stick them <laughs> at one end of this training run, and then they go back and they say, stay. And you can see that that dog doesn't want to be there. <laughs> And they stay, and they, you know, they really work with it. And finally, they say, "Okay, come." And the dog comes, and they give it a treat. And the dogs will do remarkable things, and it's wonderful to watch. But you see, the dog is not doing it because they feel like staying. <laughs> the dog is doing it because they're going to get a treat, you know. And and so that it's possible to modify behavior is what I was thinking about while watching the dog training. It's possible to modify behavior by offering a treat if people modify possible to modify behavior by inflicting pain, you know, not nice to say, but you know, sometimes if you have a huge big dog and you want to train it, they have those very difficult leashes that are really choke chains. And you walk with your dog and you don't intend to choke the dog, but, but when you stop the dog and you want to teach it to heal, you really have to pull on the chain. Um, and so the dog is uncomfortable, but then it learns to stay because it's learned that if it doesn't stay, it gets hurt. Dogs that, uh, or other kinds of animals that are kept into a certain perimeter because of a, an electric fence, they learn that they get hurt. So they don't learn to feel like staying there. They learn to stay there because they'll be in pain if they don't. But human beings actually can decide to, in, to transmute an impulse because it's for the common good for them to do it. They can really decide, I feel like doing this, but I'm not going to do it because it's not good for me. It's not good for everybody else. The instructions to Rahula that the Buddha gave, instructions for behavior, his son Rahula, 
uh, it's a sermon called Instructions to Rahula. And he said, you should contemplate before doing any action. Is this what I'm about to do? Good for everybody and good for me. And if it is, okay, then do it. If it's not, don't do it. And during an action, you should reflect. Thus should you reflect. Is what I am doing now good for myself and good for everybody? And if it is, okay. And if it's not, you can stop. And after you did something, you should reflect. Is what I just did good for myself and good for everybody? The idea that you would be moved enough to, for is it good for everybody? Not just good for me. Is it good? I, there was a period of time when... Maybe someone said earlier, maybe the most hopeful thing is that we could suddenly become kinder people um, out of this whole experience of the world. You know, if we haven't seen enough of the suffering in the whole world and this wakes us up to it, maybe we'll be more sensitive to it now. Let's skip over from there. So starting with the idea that human beings can decide for the good of the many to not do what they feel like doing, is an enormous step up from being pushed around by your impulses. You know, that we can decide, I feel like, but I'm not. As a matter of fact, in Buddhist cosmology, it's said that it's much better to be a human being than to be an angel. Because uh, angelic beings on that realm of devas, you know, if there's a realm of devas, you know, but in that cosmology of that part of the world where there are different realms, realms of fully enlightened beings, realms of devas, uh, angels. In that realm, there's not enough discomfort because they don't have bodies, devas. So they don't have bodies, they're not discomforted. We really need to have a body to feel uncomfortable, hungry and tired and angry. You need viscera to feel visceral reactions. So it's said to be a much more fortunate birth to be born in a human body than any other kind of a body because you have just the right admixture of pain and suffering and grief and um, the ability to really appreciate and love and enjoy and care, to want to, to be able to respond to suffering, to notice it and respond to it. And it's noticing suffering, really, that purifies the heart. Fundamentally, I think it's what purifies the heart. We think about... Uh, what does it mean to be liberated? I suppose you could say it liberated from the sense of a separate self that isn't, that is in any way not connected to everything else that's happening. You know, it's hard to teach separate, <coughs> non-separate self, anatta. When I first heard my teachers teaching about dukkha, nicca, anatta, the three characteristics of experience that the awarenesses that might arise to you as um, uh, awarenesses through meditation, that you might realize that there's no one in here that owns the thought, for instance. That was the hardest one. What do you mean there's no one in there? It certainly feels like there's someone in there, you know, and that we often say, I am angry. I remember. Uh, studying for a while with uh, Advaita teachers and non-dual Buddhist teachers, where they say, where is the I that's angry? And all you get is angrier when they say that. Because <laughs> you know, the, you know, the, it, it, it's like an annoying question. Never mind, where is it? If it's here or it's here or it's here. It's in my belly button or in my nose. It doesn't matter. Anger is present. But the sense of really knowing that there's no one who owns it 
that it's an experience of energy that fills up the consciousness for a certain period of time. And if it's given us energy, it will continue. And if it's made uh, held in compassion, that it will dissipate. And that you can use the anger as an indicator that something needs to be done. You can use it, certainly. But that you don't have to own it. And then figure out how to get rid of it. Just work with it wisely. But it's very hard to start with uh, anatta because it certainly feels like there's someone in there. And it doesn't feel so much like it would be very useful to disabuse people of the sense of anatta. Suppose there's no one there. So then what? Actually, sometimes it's actually not such a helpful awareness that there's a sense of narcissism that comes. If there's no one here and there's no one there, then there's no mine and there's no yours. And what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. And uh, there's actually a, a very healthy aspect of recognizing separateness. You know, when babies are we babies, they don't really see what's mine and what's not mine. You know, their 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 mother certainly in the beginning is completely at their disposal. If they're fortunate, their parents take very good care of them, and their parents are theirs, and they can make all kinds of demands on them and get what they want and. You, you know, just, when, when you have wee babies and small toddlers, you fix the house so that the house is all right for them to be in. You know, say, this is mine, it's all theirs. And at a certain point, at a certain point, you say, listen, this is mine and this is yours. This is your place you do with your stuff. And, um, can I tell you, it's, it's, it's probably good for all of our moods. I visited the, I was babysitting the other day. And my youngest grandchild is 18 months old. I was hoping she'd be here this morning. And uh, she's figured out the crayons now. Her brother has crayons. And uh, uh, she's actually fascinated with them. And her mother's an artist, so we're really hoping that the fascination is a real one and that that gene has come into her. And I noticed that uh, she, there's a table out, and she every time she goes by the table, she crayons and puts down a crayon, picks up another crayon. I, I really interested in that. I think it's a really exciting sign. I also noticed that there's a lot of crayoning on one particular area of the wall. That there's a, like a, uh, and that uh, her mother's pretty cool about it. I said, you notice there's like a mural here. And she, said, she, said, well, yeah. she said, I don't let her do that when I'm in the room. I point out the paper. But I wasn't in the room when she made that mural. And I realized that it's just a you know, place in the mind where you can either think of it as a, a messed up wall or, you know, a mural. It's a mural done by an 18-month-old. <laughs> but it's not a sense of this is the paper and this is the wall. After a while, we get a sense. This is my paper and your wall, or our wall, and I don't write on it. But we don't expect children, we children, to do that. We expect it after a while that we know this is mine and this is yours, and it's a sanctity of space. When we come on retreat, one of the most lovely things about retreats is the sanctity that you feel being with people who, even that we know there's a, there isn't an I who owns this, that there's a sanctity of treating each other. That has nothing to do with misusing people. It has to do with you know, holding, holding separateness and sanctity, but, holding, uh, but not recognizing separate in the way of discrete, that how I behave makes a difference in the world. How we each behave makes a difference in the world. I'm much happier... Uh, using the concept of uh, interrelatedness than I am the one of uh, separate self. I think it's much more useful 
in terms of everything that we do, has an impact on everybody else. And so really, it makes sense for us to be sensitive to that. There are two words in Pali that come up a lot about that. The words are hiri and otapa, and they mean the awareness of the possibility with every single thing we do of causing, that every single thing we do will cause a response. Every single thing we do, even not doing, is a, is, is a doing in a certain way. Certainly, a, a thing that we do has the possibility of causing um, suffering, has the possibility of mitigating suffering also, but has the possibility of causing pain. And the other word, hiri and otapa, the other word means uh, that the uh, ripple effect of every single action is forever. So that whatever you do has an impact. Sometimes I ask people about what, how, how long ago can you remember, what was the earliest time that you remember a remark that someone made that was hurtful to you? Mm-hmm. And normally, the earliest time that we remember is about four or five years old. That's when we begin to really remember. Can you remember earlier than four? Probably not. We have dim memory before that. We went to kindergarten and somebody said something unfortunate, or first grade, someone says, and it has an impact on the whole life, you know? Maybe it doesn't change the whole life, but it's in there forever, you know? So it makes some sort of a, an impact. That sort of awareness of the way in which we are related to each other, I think is what transforms the heart so that ultimately we behave ourselves well in a kindly way, not because we're afraid we'll get hurt, or we're wanting to get a treat, but because we feel like. That's really the difference. Because we have really become so sensitive to how easy it is to cause suffering in the world. In all kinds of ways. It came up earlier. Fundamentally, in the ways of greed and hatred and confusion. In the way of thinking that I need to have my needs met in a way that doesn't look out for other people's needs. And the relationship to that and this practice, which is really where I wanted to go, is that I think it's not self-evident, but self-relevatory if we pay attention. I think that the key is paying attention. What we do here when we sit, and what, what those instructions in the Mindfulness Sutta are, are instructions for paying attention. You know, I've given up on telling people I've given up. Mostly, I've given up <laughs> on saying, I've tried to give up on saying to people, when I travel other places, that I teach mindfulness. It's such a peculiar word, you know. Nobody knows what that is, you know. You say, say, okay, I teach Zen. They don't know what that is either, but at least they get a picture of how you sit or something. <laughs> or I teach Buddhism is not a very good thing either to say, because which Buddhism? And actually, I don't teach Buddhism as much as I teach mindfulness. But then people say, mindful of what? You know, I thought meditation was about mind empty. Uh, well, actually, you know, mindfulness is just a, a hundred-year-old word. I think it's the English, tra- I, mean, I know it's the English translation of sati. And I, I'm pretty sure it's because the early translations of Buddhist texts and the early Westerners studying Buddhism were British. The earliest texts were into <coughs> British English. And mindful is really a British term. People will say, when you're about to trip over a step, they'll say, mind the step, you know. Um, they use mind in a different way, mind the step. I think it means pay attention. This is, so I, when people say, what do you teach? 
So I teach paying attention. Uh, so that's what I teach, paying attention. And uh, <coughs> I'd like us to change the name of it, but it doesn't have like a sacred feeling, you know, mindfulness, Zen, that sounds sacred. Paying attention, son. But seriously, when you think about the Mindfulness Sutta, which is the Sutta on the Foundations of Mindfulness, which is the fundamental teaching out of the Pali Canon, out of which we teach, doesn't say a single word. Well, it does say it. That's wrong. It doesn't say it. does say a single word of cosmology. The very last paragraph of the Mindfulness Sutta says, if you practice these four ways of paying attention without uh, losing your focus for uh, seven years, you'll be liberated. Then it says, well, not only seven years, if you do it for seven months, you'll be liberated. Not only seven months, seven weeks. Not only that, seven days. You could do it for seven days and pay attention moment to moment. It would be the end of grief and lamentation. I love to say that to people on retreat, for instance. First of all, I love to say it in a seven-day retreat because then people come, they feel, well, seven days, what can I do, you know? You can say, look, here, the Buddha said seven days, free. <laughs> I like to teach it on a four-week retreat because then I say, look, it, says it only takes seven days, but here, you got four times that, so for sure, you know, if you start now and really redouble your efforts, especially on a four-week retreat, if three weeks have gone by and people feel, ah, nothing much happened, you know, I, I, you know I'll coast to the end, then you say, listen, you were here for three weeks. You could, now is your chance, you know? That I don't actually think it has to do with cumulative time. I think that little end of the Mindfulness Sutta is, this is my own interpretation. I could be wrong, but what I think it is, is I think it's, you know, it's a, um, uh, it's a kind of, uh, uh, what would you call it? I don't want to call it contemporary because a contemporary, well, contemporary to the Buddha, way of exhorting people to really work hard, to do this diligently. The end of the Buddha's life, uh, in the very last uh, teaching that he did, just before he died, the very last words of the very last teaching was strive on with diligence. That's actually the, the, the most common translation. Uh, the same sort of exhortation about really do it. This is really a doable thing. Since the morning for Buddha uh, quotations, the other thing he said is, if this were not possible, I wouldn't ask it of you. And this is a feasible thing to do. We have all of these lifetimes of conditioning, but we could see through them. We could make our way through all this thicket of conditioning, through the ways in which the mind has habits of getting mad or getting uh, greedy or confusing itself and say, wait a minute, that's a lifetime of conditioning doing it that way. I can start right now and do it another way. There's another way. There is the way of compassionate, open-hearted, wise, alert response. That's the one I want. Hatred never ceased with hatred. And to go for that over and over again. And I think what we don't is because we're startled. This is the way I think that Mindfulness Sutta works. So I, I like that exhortation at the end. By the way, when I gave you the instruction and we sat, and I said this is a modern translation, uh, the Sutta itself says, this is the sole way, O monks, for the end of grief and, liber uh, grief and lamentation. 
So the soul away, it's not ecumenical enough for us these days. You know, if we're going to sign interfaith documents, we have to say this is a very good way. Um, it's more politically correct. It's also more correct, correct. Never mind politically correct. It's correct, correct. Um, and then omangs is already not uh, acceptable because we are none of us here ordained clergy, and we are none of us. Um, we are not all of us men. So it's not. Um, we are not all of us men. So it's not appropriate to say omangs. So uh, it's actually um, um, Gill and Jaxl translation that says, um, this is a very good way, oh friends, for the ending of grief and lamentation. It's a much better way to say it. And who knows actually how the Buddha said it. You know, it was 500 years before anybody wrote anything down. So here's what I think the Mindfulness Sutta says. It says, this is the end of the tendency of the mind to struggle with what cannot be otherwise now. See, I think the really important point of that is not that it couldn't be otherwise tomorrow with what we put into it. But we have to be sure that what we put into it is in the direction, well, for me, what I have to be sure of what I put into it is not further confusion. This is a very good way, oh friends, to end the mind contraction over what's happening keep the heart open and enable a compassionate response to happen. And then it says, this is the way, pay attention in these four ways. And then the four ways are the ways in which we just practice. The first of those ways is pay attention to your body. Pay attention to the sensations of the body, pay attention to the sensations of the breath. It's very clear to me that You could stay with that practice for your entire practice career. When you go on a Vipassana retreat, on a mindfulness retreat, you stay with that for a while. And then after a while we say, well, now we're going to open it to whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The truth is you've been noticing all the time whether they're pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. It always sounds like an odd thing to say, now we'll open it up to that as if the mind didn't know that beforehand. It knew. Maybe you didn't make mental notes in words about that, but probably you did. Say, flee, this is a terrible experience. When is it going to end? I mean, that's a mental note, you know, that, uh, that uh, I mean, it's not like you give them my sense of, we, we, uh, I come from a long line of school teachers. I'm always thinking about what's the pedagogy of this? This is weird. <clears throat> but really bring the attention back again and back again and back again to just what's happening, just what's happening, just what's happening with as much balance as you can. And noticing that what's happening is always pleasant or unpleasant or not much of pleasant or unpleasant. It's kind of neutral, in which case often we fall asleep. There's not so much to notice whether it's pleasant or unpleasant just because we're having a checklist. Well, today I had 75% pleasant and 25% unpleasant. Yesterday it was the other way around. That's, you know, or it's not actually to be paying attention, certainly not to be paying attention to the body and the breath in order to become pulmonologists and you know, to know how that works. It's really to see fundamentally what is essentially true, that things keep changing. The line that the Buddha said before his final line, strive on with diligence, was everything that comes into being passes away. That really is the operative line, that the liberating insight is the changingness of things, that everything is constantly changing and in flux, that this moment is becoming the future, and the future is becoming whatever it is as a result of this moment, that things have causes and make effects. 
And then there's a sense of knowing since things are caused and have effects, what I do makes a difference. So you can see that in every kind of breath, in every breath. You can see those uh, insights of practice. You don't have to be naming pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, uh, what's the contents of mind. First of all, you know. It's not that they just suddenly become clear to you because someone gave the instruction, pay attention to them. They're there already. But just bringing the attention to the breath, you'd be able to see that things come and go. Every breath is born and disappears, and is born and disappears, and is born and disappears. Coming and going is... You can see on the macro, on the micro level in the breath, you see it on the macro level. Do you see the moon this morning when you came? It was the most full this morning. Tomorrow morning it'll be a little less and a little less. A little less. In particular, uh, traditions of, uh, of Buddhism, certainly amongst my friends who studied with Asian teachers in different parts of Asia, there were traditions in which people mostly did concentration practice, eyes closed in their body and the minutiae of bodily experience arising and passing away. And there were those people, some of my friends who lived in monasteries where the teachers said, watch the moon, watch the seasons, watch the day change from morning until night. I very much uh, used to enjoy, used to go to Yucca Valley every spring to stay for three weeks for the three-week retreat. I did it as a student and I taught there. Because if you stay three weeks, that big desert expanse, you see the waxing and waning of moon tremendously well. You get to see every day that really time is passing by. Uh, we say that all the time. We have all kinds of expressions. Um, time flies or uh, life is short. But we don't really, I think if we got it, that it's as short as it is and as really as ephemeral as it is, we would not miss a moment. All the people who said over the last few weeks that really what they're doing is phoning up friends and saying, I love you, because you don't know if you're going to get another chance to do that. That's always true. It's always true. One of my friends, some of my friends, uh, have really developed the habit, I, I think I told you this, of not saying goodbye on the telephone. We don't we say, I love you, before you hang up. It's a perfectly good thing to say to people. And then you have to know to hang up. Okay, I'll talk to you next week. I love you. You know, that, that, that means goodbye. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, um, or to sign your emails that way. Uh, why not? So you can see the coming and goingness in every breath. There's a practice called Anapana, Anapanasati, which is mindfulness of the breath. There's a wonderful book by Larry Rosenberg about it. Some people, when they practice mindfulness, practice mindfulness of the breath and the body and then attention to feelings and mind and really what's happening, which is the fourth domain of mindfulness. And for some people, they study in a tradition where the practice is anapana forever. You just do the breath. It's not like you get stuck on the breath. It's like everything is there in the breath. It comes and it goes. Some are pleasant, not pleasant. If you have a cold and can't breathe well, it's unpleasant. You get to see how the mind closes around unpleasant circumstances. We just don't want unpleasant. We tend to close down. And how to, and that it's possible to say, well, this is unpleasant, but I'm here. And this is pleasant, but I'm here. How to stay in a place of balance in pleasant and unpleasant. I, uh, I probably have told you that uh, the story of going to Dharamsala, um, oh, 
1995, there was a conference of uh, Western uh, Buddhist teachers, all lineages. Twenty-six of us were there, and meeting with the, the Dalai Lama for several days. There are many great things about that conference, but there was a moment that I, I really have treasured. At the end of it, they, in, in the rooms of the meetings, we were there for a week, there were 26 of us and uh, three people who weren't Buddhist teachers. They were two people videoing it for some archive somewhere. The video exists. Maybe sometime in the far distant future they'll show that video when we're all gone. And, and so everybody, everybody, it'll be actually quite interesting, I think, if they do that. Uh, I'd love to see that sometime. Um, Hmm? After you're gone. I'll have to see it from the other side, uh, if there's another side. <laughs> um, but there were two videoers and a person who was a, uh, is a journalist who was going to write it up for something, for Tricycle or something. And um, at the end of the week, um, the very last, and, they did, and the understanding was that they could be in all the rooms of all the meetings, but no talking. They just had to just be doing their thing and keeping the notes and videoing. And in the very last day, we went around the whole circle of the 26 people, and everybody had, was asked to say what had been their most meaningful thing of the whole week. There were all these meetings with ourselves, with the Dalai Lama. And everybody went around and said what aspect had been most meaningful to them. In truth, I don't remember what I said was my most meaningful moment. I don't know. Maybe that was it, because at that moment, when they had all finished with us, they asked these two videotapers and the journalists. What was your most memorable moment? Well, what, what do you take home with you? And the person who was a journalist said, you know, in this whole week, no one complained. Mm. And I thought to myself, he's right. No one complained. Not, and it, there were every possible, <laughs> there, there were so many possibilities for complaining. <laughs> um, it's extremely hard to get to Dharamsala to begin with. It's a long, long, a couple of very extremely long flights. Plus an overnight train trip uh, from Delhi to Patankot, plus a four-hour taxi ride to Harrowing from uh, from Patankot to Dharamsala, plus strange food, strange circumstances. The hotel is not heated. Um, there were all kinds of things to complain. I have wonderful photos of us sitting in the living room of this hotel at night. The 26 teachers having our evening meeting together, and I am sitting bundled up with a very well-known uh, Zen teacher in a, in, a, in a big blanket together. Someone has taken a photo of us, and it's really a cute picture of us. You know, that doesn't have the whole context, just like it looks like the two of us are sitting in a bed together, all bundled up. <laughs> but it was cold, you know, it wasn't really heated, this hotel. And um, uh, there was every possibility to complain. One day we were coming back from His Holiness's... Um, compound where he lives at lunchtime we're rushing because the, the monastics have to eat before the the before afternoon because then they can't eat till the next day and it was pouring it was just pouring and the, the monsoons had come early I guess and it was just sluicing down the hill and water running across and I was sharing an umbrella with Ajahn Sundara um, uh, who you may know is the most senior nun at Amaravati and we're walking together under an umbrella, and the rain is pouring. We're both wearing sandals. She's trying to hold her robes up so they don't get wet. There's every possible opportunity to say, to grumble. And nobody did the whole week. We didn't grumble at anything. 
And I thought it was as if we were getting a test in Buddha Dharma, everybody, and we were doing well, you know. <laughs> you know that I thought, you know, this is a test, never mind what we talk about with His Holiness, you know. That, that I mean, what, what, you know, it, clearly that part we got. Grumbling is extra, complaining is extra. <laughs> what you can change, you change. What you can't, you open your heart to. He says, what's happening? This is it. I just, uh, I know I told you that when uh, Ajahn Sumedho came here to teach us in the spring, and uh, I did tell you, 15 of the whole Spirit Rock faculty, which is 15, 16, 17 of us, sat for a week up here, our own retreat. It was wonderful. And we had Ajahn Sumedho here from England, from Amaravati teaching. And the best line of his teaching for me was he'd talk about meeting any kind of a circumstance, an outer circumstance or an inner circumstance, and being able to say to himself, it's like this. You know, that's what's happening. Not to say that you don't do anything, you do lots of things about what's happening when you can. But you, you evaluate, it's like this. If there's something to be done, you do it. If there's nothing, you make a space for it. It's so simple, Buddha Dharma. What we're meant to see in paying attention to the breath or to the coming and going of pleasant and unpleasant experiences is that things come and go according to conditions. Our response is one of the conditions. You fight with something, it's coming and going. This will be different from if you let it be. You take wise steps, it's coming and going. This will also be different. So it doesn't mean no response. It means right response or wise response. I, I think about, uh, I like, by the way, our prayer reel very much where it has the uh, Eightfold Path rather than right action, right, uh, right speech, right livelihood, right understanding, right aspiration, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. It says wise rather than right. You know, how do we know what's right? Uh, we can't make a rule, but wise. That's a wise thing to do now. Fundamentally, that's what the Mindfulness Sutta says. If you pay attention, you'll see what's, uh, what's true. And on the basis of what's universally true, that things pass, that things have causes and effects, that certain kinds of um, states open the mind, that they're wise to cultivate them, like spontaneous lovingness, feelings of empathy, feelings of compassion, feelings of kindness. It's wise to discover what it is that does that for you and then to cultivate in your life. Still going through my mind a little bit that when we started to talk early this morning at 7.30, we were going to talk on the point of... Um, what is it that keeps our heart open? Or what's keeping us at least balanced in these days? And it occurred to me, and I discovered in our sharing that it's, well, I was the only one that it occurred to, that it would do us a lot of good if we each came home and found someone had left a kitten on our doorstep. Because what comes up is like uh, the nurturant feeling for most of us, I think. For all of us, probably. And then I said, well, I can't deal with a kitten, right? I mean, but then I thought, to, then as I was sitting, I thought, well, maybe a kitten, you know? That, uh, but really, wise effort is that effort to discover what's the mind state, what's the mind state that's present? Is it wise for me to 
really build on this? Is it wise for me to set it aside, put my attention? Well, I can't set it aside. I can put my attention somewhere else. I can choose what I put my attention on. That's another uniquely human characteristic. We can hide from things, which usually isn't a wise choice, but we can say, whoa, and I choose to put my attention here. And people were sharing, it was mostly about that we keep ourselves going by choosing, now I put this much more information in, and now I do this. Uh, now I now I discover that I'm still breathing in and out. Now I discover that it's possible for me in the midst of a complex world to really discover a space of peace. The first line of the metta resolves is, may, may I be safe? And the word has come up a lot in this last month about, you know, are we ever really safe? What does it mean, safe? Safe from what? Some people, when they do their metta practice, say, may I be safe from inner and outer harm? <coughs> it gets into really interesting uh, Dharma debates because from a non-dual perspective, there's no one who can be harmed, inner or outer. So then you can get off that point, and then the people who say, listen, forget about that. It's just like, it's provocative to say, show me where's the eye that's angry. Uh, it just makes you more inflamed. You say, I want to feel safe. And you say, where's the eye that wants to feel safe? So that's an annoying thing to say. say. There might not be an eye here, but we certainly know what safe feels like and what not safe feels like. So... Um, it's an old line in my family. When anyone resorts to the non-dual, the other person says, don't give me that guff. You know, <laughs> the bottom line is we have people with viscera and nervous systems and reactions. And whether or not there's a separate self, we all know what anger feels like. We all know what safe feels like. We all know what contented feels like. That whole mindfulness sutta is really a, a non sectarian sutta without a cosmology. Pay attention, it says, to what's happening. That everything arises and passes away is the first thing that you discover. That struggle causes suffering. That the end of struggling is a possibility. That we could train our minds not to struggle with what we can't fix. I was looking in a book last night called uh, You Can't Afford the Luxury of a Negative Thought. Do you remember that? It was a great bestseller 10 years ago, I think. I decided not to bring it because um, it seemed just, as, just last night a little bit too simple for what are really complex times. and Probably everybody's had negative thoughts. And I didn't feel like, uh, I don't feel like they're a luxury. I feel like they're a difficulty. But I did learn something very interesting from it. I, I, I re, or at least I relearned. Do you remember who wrote the, the Serenity Prayer when it comes to? Reinhold Niebuhr. I'd forgotten that. 1943. Reinhold Niebuhr, the Christian theologian teaching on Morningside Heights in New York City in 1943. <coughs> I thought it was older than that somehow. Grant me the courage. To accept the things I cannot change. So one of them is the strength and one of them is the courage. What is serenity, courage, and wisdom? Okay, so which goes first? Serenity. The serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Yeah. The courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to. It's another difference. Okay. 
Okay. Thank you very much. I think it is the single prayer most said in this country every single day. It's wonderful. It is wonderful. It is said in 12-step meetings all over this country every single day by millions of people. Millions, literally millions of people. You know, my, my friend Sharon Salzberg uh, is uh, happy to teach mindfulness, uh, uh, metta, as a prayer that might save the whole world. I think the serenity prayer, if everybody said it, it's right in that category. Maybe those are the two things that really, maybe the serenity prayer is the mindfulness prayer and uh, the metta uh, resolves are the, are the other half of it. One of them is if I had that. That's really the, 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 the connection, I think, between mindfulness and metta. May I have the serenity, may I have the courage, and may I have the wisdom. And if I had them, I would be able to wish in gladness and in safety. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free of suffering. May all beings be safe. May all beings have minds that are at ease. May they have bodies that support them. May they live. I've been changing my metta resolves in the last few weeks because I've been listening to that chant, the metta chant so much, and the fourth line of that chant is, may all beings take care of themselves happily. And it's a really such a nice uh, ending. It's five minutes to 11. I want to tell you that I will not be here for three weeks. I'll be back at the next full moon, actually. I'll see you on Halloween. Um, four weeks from today should be another full moon. Um, and I say we should all come in costume, but we have, actually. We are all masquerading as individual people different from each other. <laughs> When, in fact, we're not. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll do something about that on that day. Do you remember, a, uh, I, I want us to do three minutes of metta together, but I just want to ask you, do you remember there was a television program in the very, very early days of television called To Tell the Truth? Do you remember that? Who doesn't remember it? Don't know what it is. Okay, for Lorna, I'm going to tell that They'd get three contestants, players. You tell me if I'm wrong on this. They actually but have a game now. I don't know if that's what it's called, but it's on yeah. it now, so you can... Catch it. Okay. What's the name of it now? I don't know. Well, here was the point. You tell me if I'm remembering wrong. My recollection is that three people, like Lorna, you could sit next to me, and I would sit here, and maybe Miriam sit here. And Miriam would say, my name is... Miriam would say, my name is Lorna. And I'd say, my name is Lorna. And then you'd say, my name is Lorna. And then the rest of the people here who don't know us wouldn't know who is really Lorna. So they would ask questions of us. But in the meantime, you would have so briefed us on uh, what it is that you do as a, as a corporate coach going around talking to people that I suddenly would know all the vocabulary of corporate coaching. So when they say, what do you do? I would say, well, I go place to place. And in my free time as my volunteer job, what I do is I work with early childhood education, sharing these same things with them. And I, they, I would sound just like Lorna. <laughs> because, <laughs> and then at the end, people would vote. Um, and then they, they'd receive the, the, the celebrities who have done the questioning write down who's Lorna, and then they'd say, will the real Lorna please stand up? And then the real Lorna stands up. <laughs> but I have the sense that, oh! The artist is here. That this is, I just told the whole story about honor, and she's here. Hi, Harrison, come over. 
one minute. We're, we're just going to do a meditation. You can sit on me if you want. Yeah, you come sit. Yes. You can sit down. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. We just finished telling stories about... Um, there's a cat outside. We'll go play with it. Uh, we just finished telling stories. Uh huh. Okay. So well, I have to just finish the end of it. What we'll do the next time on Halloween is we will pretend we're someone else by having listened to the other person well enough to say who they are. Because imagine, think of that as a consciousness-raising thing for the whole world. If we actually got in somebody else's shoes for a little bit and talked about how it is. You want to say what your name is? We just Harrison. What's your whole name? Harrison Hunter. Pennington. Uh-huh. Do you, do you want to say what your sister's name is? Honor Rose. Pennington. Uh-huh. And uh, who's your mom? Kate Liz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and who am I? Bub. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, that's an affectionate uh, diminutive of grandmother. <laughs> So we're going to do a meditation. Can you sit very quietly for about um, one minute and uh, close your eyes and you do the same instructions that I'm going to give? Can you follow instructions? Okay. So we're all going to close our eyes and we're going to take one big breath in and we're going to blow it out. And then leaving our eyes closed, we're going to smile. We're going to think about who we love in the whole world. Probably everybody is thinking, first of all, about their mommies and daddies and sisters and brothers and children and grandchildren. And then they're thinking about everybody else in the world, their uncles and their aunties and their cousins, and the people who live next door, people who live across the street. And then they're making wishes. So we'll all make wishes. I'll tell you the wish, and you wish it very hard. You don't have to say it out loud. You just have to wish it. You have to wish. I wish everybody in the whole world has a comfortable house to live in so they can go home at night and sleep. I wish everybody in the whole world has very good food to eat so that they're healthy. And I wish everybody has a very happy mood so that they're very sweet to each other and everybody feels good. So those are the best wishes. And we wish it as hard as we can. And then we smile because it feels very good to make such a good wish. And then we get ready to open our eyes, because when we open our eyes and we see a whole room of people smiling, we feel really good. So then we say, one, two, three, open your eyes. That's it. You just meditated. That was a very good thing. <laughs> okay. You want to come back again sometime? Yeah. You can come whenever you Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. So thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you in, uh, please, oh, let me tell you who's going to be here. It's a wonderful three weeks. Um, let me just say, oh, when? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.